0: Good morning. morning. Are you well? That's very good. Right, so we are back. If you remember, a while ago we were going through Matthews so before I even arrived at RK. We're going back to Matthew now. We are on Matthew 21, uh, verses 12 to 70. So if you've got a Bible, turn there now. If you haven't, don't worry, because I'm the one who's written the talk. So I shall read it, and then we'll talk about it. So Matthew 21, verses 12 to uh, 17. Jesus cleanses the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Isn't love great? Who loves a bit of love? I know I do. I love love. Isn't love the best thing? It's not a rhetorical question I'm asking you. Isn't love the best thing? Love's great, isn't it? You know, when you, when you lay down your life so your friends can live. Isn't that the best because that's obviously what you, what you thought I meant when I said love, isn't it? As soon as I said love, you instantly thought of self-sacrifice, didn't you? There's absolutely no other connotation connected with love, is there? Is there? No answer. <laughs> I rest my case. I don't, I've got lots more to say. This, um, this little passage that we've just read is um, a scaled-down model of the awesomeness of the Christian message. And it's uniqueness. Because in this passage, what we do have is we have God showing up amongst us, calling out what is wrong. And then even though it's wrong, bringing healing rather than condemnation. We have Jesus showing up, calling out the lies as they are. But then even though there are lies, he brings redemption. This this passage, however, is a a problem for those people whose view of spirituality begins and ends with the phrase, God is love. If all you have to say about spirituality and religion is the phrase, well, if there is a God, he's a God of love, then you have a problem with this passage because here we have Jesus being angry. We have Jesus, who is God, showing up and being angry and turning over tables. It doesn't look very loving. See the problem is that for most people in our society they are actually happy with the idea that there exists a God of love. Most people in that respect are not atheists. Most people are really happy with the idea that there is a God of love provided that and for as long as they get to define what love is. The moment people have a problem is when this God of love shows up and starts giving us his pre-prepared definition of what love is. When God shows up and defines what love is, that's when we have a problem. So my question is, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> I knew Suzanne would like that. What is love? You see, love is the most emotive word that we have. Look, just the word love makes us feel great. And it's everywhere. The word love is everywhere. Love conquers all. Love makes the world go round. Hashtag love wins. Love is love. I agree with all of these things. But my question is, what is love? Well, Andy, love is love. Oh, thanks for clearing that up. I'm glad you did that. Thank you. You see, the problem is that until you give a word a definition, it can't really have a meaning. For a word to have true meaning, it has to be truly defined. For a word or a concept to have proper meaning, it has to be properly defined. It's all very well and good saying love is love, but I could just say Stilton is Stilton. OK, well, what is Stilton? Well, I'm glad you asked. Stilton is a triangular wedge of fat which is both delicious and somehow makes mould fashionable. That's what Stilton is. I'm glad we now have something to hang the meaning of the word Stilton on. So my question is, what is love? Love wins. Love wins by showing up and being well-defined and being active, not by being vague and passive. What do we mean by love? I love my family. I love my family. I also absolutely love pizza. A little cheeky meat feast on a Sunday evening after church. Yes, please. But if there was a fire in my house and I only had the time and the chance to save either a 12-inch Texas barbecue (laughs) or my two daughters from the blaze, you do believe that there is a right answer and a wrong answer there. You don't think those things are equal. I wouldn't be able to stand before the police and say, well, to be honest, I just love pizza and, you know, love is love and love wins. The police officer wouldn't be able to say, well, to be honest, he said the word love a lot there and he got quite emotional. So, you know, we can't touch him. You do believe that love has a definition. I'm all right saying love is love, but we need to ask, what is love? If God exists and predates us, then the definition of God is already defined. If a God of love exists and predates us, then he has already defined himself on what love is. We don't get to tell him. We should be asking what love is, not telling him what love is. If there is a God of love, then love is already defined for us. Love has a context. This is the point I'm making. Love has a context. The Christian view is that God is love. Like, we really agree with that. And you know what? Christianity is the only religion where God is actually love. God is love, but He's not just love, He's also truth. And the thing that truth repels is lies. Like, God is love, but He doesn't love lies, He flipping hates them. Truth repels lies. Jesus says, I am the truth. He refers to Satan as being the father of lies. What Jesus doesn't say is, yeah, Satan is the father of lies, but to be honest, he really loves lying. He loves those lies, and to be fair, love is love, and love wins. Let's call it 1-1. He doesn't say that. God is truth, and God hates lies, because love hates lies. True love hates lies. God is love, and he's truth, but he's also light. And the thing that can't stand in the presence of light is darkness. Darkness flees from the light because it's the absence of light. God is not just love. He's also truth. He's also light. He's also justice. And if there's one thing that justice can't be dealing with, it's injustice. And the reason we understand these things is because we are made in the image of a God who is like this. No one is going to stand before God and tell him that he's not being very God-like. Because whoever God is, that's who he is. No one's going to stand before God and say, you're not very godlike because you don't decide what God is like. He already does. No one's going to stand before God. No one's going to stand before a God of love and tell him he's not being loving because God is love and you're not. You love, but you are not love. No one's going to stand before God and say, you're not being very fair because he is fairness. He is fairness. It would be like this orange standing before the colour orange, and saying, I don't think you're very orange. I don't know how they're having the conversation. It's an analogy. Oranges can't talk. Be like this orange, stand before the colour orange and say, I don't think you're very orange. The colour orange would rightly say to this orange, to be honest mate, the only reason you're called orange is because of me. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be called orange. So it's not that we don't understand love and we don't understand justice and we don't understand truth. We do because we are made in the image of a God who is these things. He is the source of these things. I now regret the orange analogy. <laughs> when people say, when most people say they want a God of love or they, want, they believe in a God of love, what most people mean is they want a God of tolerance. They want a God of tolerance. They want a God who will give them free reign to do whatever they want at all times without consequence. The problem is that that is not love. People want a God of tolerance who lets them have free reign without consequence. But that's not a good love and that's not a good definition of love either. When I was at school, when I was about six years old, I was in infant school, my teacher was called Mrs. Jones. Now, I've talked about Mrs. Jones before. She was the one who told me off having a Twitch. Do you remember that from a, anyone, anyone ever been to RK before? And despite the fact that she was horrible to me, at the end of the uh, school year, you'd, um, I don't know if they still do it, but you'd buy your teachers a gift. And so for Mrs. Jones, probably this is 1987, I'm going back to now, uh, my mum bought for Mrs. Jones a box of uh, mint matchmakers. They really were the flagship gift to give to anyone in the late 80s. I mean, they're pretty nice now, but back then they were the Netflix of their day, honestly. And because they were so delicious, I ate them. I ate them all. I'm not sorry. And we'll talk about why I don't need to be sorry later. No spoilers. Don't make me do another orange analogy. (laughs) because I've got loads I ate them all because they were so delicious and then when my mum said did Mrs Jones get her present okay I said that they'd been eaten but because I didn't want to get in trouble I blamed a young lad called Brent Brent was the naughty boy in our class and so I blamed him because I knew someone was going to get in trouble and as long as it wasn't me I didn't really care and so my mum unexpectedly I think went searching for Brent she found out where his house was and honestly, this is true, she got as far as the front door before I said, actually it was me, it was me, I, I ate the delicious mint matchmakers, the Netflix of their day. At this point my mum redirected her anger towards me. Now the thing is, I didn't want my mum to be angry with me and I didn't like the fact that I was the one who had to bear the consequence of that choice. But I can't look back and say that she wasn't being loving. What would have been really unloving is if she'd said, Well, never mind. They're only a quid. Never mind. It doesn't matter really, does it? That isn't a loving response for two reasons. First of all, number one, it would undermine the original purpose of the gift. The original purpose of a gift had a destination. It was for Mrs Jones. It was for her. That was the intention of the gift. And I had thwarted that purpose by eating the delicious matchmakers. That's the first reason. The second reason, if my mum had said, well, don't worry, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Live and let live. It would have given me the belief that I had permission to do whatever I want at all times without consequence. And imagine if that hadn't been stopped then. Imagine what else I could have got away with. If you can steal matchmakers, imagine what else you can convince yourself of stealing. See, a definition of love is not permissiveness. A definition of love is not do whatever you want at all times without consequence. You might think you want a God of tolerance, but you really don't. If my presence, you see, I didn't want to get in trouble. But if someone had stolen my presence, if someone had come in on Christmas morning and stolen the presence meant for me, I wouldn't have wanted tolerance then. I wouldn't have wanted a love that looked like tolerance. Then I would have wanted a love that looked a lot more like justice. I would have wanted a love that looked a lot more like punishment, frankly. We might think we want a God of tolerance, but we don't. We want a God of tolerance when it's us who's done stuff wrong. We want God to give us free reign to do whatever we want. But we don't have the same approach when we see ISIS, when we see child abusers, when we see rapists, we don't want a God of tolerance then. We want a God of justice. We want a God who shows up, speaks truth, sheds light and restores justice. See, tolerance requires nothing. To be tolerant, you have to do nothing. That's all tolerance is. You might think you're a tolerant person, but so what? To be tolerant, you don't need to do anything. And a God of tolerance doesn't need to do anything. He just sits back. Sits back with some matchmakers. That's all God of tolerance has to do. I lived in Moss Side for uh, seven years. Quite a rough area. Uh, we're well known in Moss Side for having the, um, the most wheelie bins of any ward in the country. Five wheelie bins. Imagine that. Five wheelie bins. I don't know why. Uh, Presumably, so when the foxes turned up in the middle of the night looking for food waste, they were forced to play Deal or No Deal. That's the only thing I can think of. (laughs) And it was quite a rough area. uh, There was a lot of community change, and um, there was a girl who lived opposite us. She was probably in her early twenties, and she lived with her partner, but he was very abusive. And we'd often hear shouting coming from their house. And on one occasion, um, I was I was outside. I was uh, about to play a little, uh, just a quick game of Deal or No Deal, and. um, I saw that the door was open and we heard shouting and screaming and swearing uh, and the sounds of fighting coming uh, from their house. And my neighbour Caroline said, you need to do something about this. I was the only one there, really. She said, you need to do something about this. Now, if I was a tolerant person, then I would just go back inside my house. Because to be tolerant, all I have to do is tolerate the fact that this guy was beating up this girl. That's what tolerance does, absolutely zero. Love does something. Love looks like something. Love actually shows up. So what I did, I walked across the road, praying in tongues the whole time, writing a will as I went. And the door was open, and I didn't just barge in like the SES, I was brought up correctly, so obviously I knocked. (laughs) I don't know what I was expecting this guy to say. Come in! I went inside and I found him standing over she was in a corner, I found him standing over her and I didn't say anything because I didn't know what to say, I was absolutely petrified I just stood in the doorway and he saw me and he pinned himself to the wall and he just fled out the other door He just fled out the other door Now this is not a story about how amazing I am All I did was terrifyingly just turn up But what happened was that this guy had had some light shone on the darkness and he just fled But you see, in that situation, it's love that does something, tolerance doesn't do anything It's a desire for justice that does something there, a desire for light, not for darkness. Love is well defined. It's not vague. A God of tolerance says that nothing is wrong. A God of vague love says that nothing is wrong. A God of tolerance says that anything goes. But that isn't a very good definition of someone who is God. A God who doesn't show up, speak truth, shed light and bring justice isn't really a God of love. He's just a God of apathy. A God who doesn't show up and speak truth and shed light and bring justice isn't a God of love. He's a God of apathy. He also is a God who disagrees with you because you don't think nothing is wrong. You do think some things are wrong. You do think some things are unjust. What is the um, what's the most popular thing about Chesterfield? What's the most well-known thing about Chesterfield? The crooked spire, Peter. Why do we call it the crooked spire? Because it's crooked. Half a point. Why don't we just call it the spire? Or why, when we see other church spires, don't we just say, "Look at that straight spire"? It's because we all know that a spire isn't supposed to be crooked. We know that's not how it was in the beginning. We know that's not how it was supposed to be. When you look on the news and you see rape and you see murder and you see child abuse, the reason you grieve is because that's not how it was supposed to be. It wasn't like that in the beginning. If you're suffering with addiction or depression or anxiety, the reason you're suffering It's because that's not who you were supposed to be. That's not what the gift of life was intended for. You don't think that your depression, your anxiety, your addiction is okay and anything goes. You don't think that. Because you know that's not how it was supposed to be. It's crooked, but it wasn't meant to be that way. You do believe that some things are wrong. And that's what Jesus does here in this passage. He turns up. He turns over the tables because that's not how it was supposed to be. That's not what the place of worship was meant for. He calls out the lies. But then what he does, instead of bringing condemnation, he brings the healing anyway. He turns up and he says to the priests, it is written, have you not read? These guys were the priests. All they did was read this stuff. He pointed them back to the truth. They knew the truth. They knew that they were wrong. But in spite of that, he doesn't go off in a mood. He heals the deaf. He heals the blind. He heals the lame. He points them back to the truth. He resets them to how it was at the beginning. And he brings the healing and he brings the redemption. You do know. You do believe that some things are wrong. You do believe that some things are right. There are some things, it is written on your heart. Some things are written on your heart. However, if atheism is true and there is no God, then that's nonsense. Because nothing is really right, nothing is really wrong, there is no justice, there is no injustice. There's just survival. There's just survival. And so people who kill so that they can get on in life, we should congratulate them, because all they are doing is following the evolutionary pattern of what life is, which is just random molecules bumping into each other for a specific amount of time until we all reach our great reward of extinction. That is the great hope of atheism. And if atheism is true, then nothing is wrong, nothing is right. It's all just survival. But you know that some things are wrong, because that's what it means to be made in the image of a god who is love, who is truth, who is justice. And this is why you don't want a God of tolerance. This is why you do want a God who shows up angry. This is why you want a God who comes and turns over the tables and says, this is not how it's supposed to be. You do want an angry God. And God is angry. He is angry. But how about this? He's angry for you. What if God God is not angry at you? What if God is angry that you are not living the life that he created for you? What if that's where his anger is directed? What if God is not angry at you, but that you do not know him like you should? Do not know the love and the hope and the purpose and the joy that you were supposed to experience? You do want an angry God. You do want a God who's angry that your joy has been stolen from you. Jesus says to these people, he says to the priests, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. But listen to what he says. He doesn't say my house was supposed to be a house of prayer and now you've ruined it by turning it into a den of robbers. He says you've turned it into a den of robbers, but my house will be called a house of prayer. I will redeem this you do want a God who's angry because you're angry because your life might feel like a den of robbers you might feel as though some of the choices you've made have robbed you of stuff some of the choices that have been made against you have robbed you of stuff but the redemption is this because of Jesus you will be called a house of prayer you will be somebody who understands redemption you will be somebody who experiences healing God is love, but he's also truth, he's also light, he's also justice. And because of that, every choice has a consequence. Every misdeed, every crime, every sin ever committed will have to be paid for. And you agree with that because that's what justice is. Somebody will have to bear the consequence of all the things that you've done wrong and all the things that have been done wrong to you, which is equally as important. We talk a lot as preachers about the sins that we commit, but equally as important is the sins that have been done to us that have separated us from God. All of these things will need to be paid for and they will be paid for. And you have a choice who bears the consequence. You can decide that you want to bear the consequence of your life of the choices you've made and the choices of others have made on your behalf. Or you can let Jesus do that. You can decide that you want to try and deal with the guilt and the blame and the shame and the pain. Or you can let him do it. You can come to the cross and watch it get nailed into him. You can come to the cross and watch all the stuff that you've done wrong, all the guilt, all the shame, all the stuff that's been done to you, the pain and the blame get nailed into him. You, can watch it take him. you can watch him take it down into the grave with him. And then you can see him come back and say, that stuff is still dead, but I'm alive. And because of me, you can have life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus has come so that you can have life. You will be called a house of prayer. You just have a choice. Every misdeed has to go somewhere. It has to be paid for by somebody. And Jesus says, I'll take it. Come to him and watch him take it. Come to him, all you addicts. Come to him, all you self-harmers. Come to him, all you depressives. Come to him, all you adulterers. Come to him, all you have been abused. And Christ will save you. He will rescue you from the consequences of the choices that have been made by you and other people. And he will trade your death for his life. It's always a trade with the Lord. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. Your death for his life. But you've got to come to the cross. Because the cross is the only place where love actually wins. And that's what it means for love to win. It's a furious anger against injustice. And a beautiful redemption and healing a beautiful restoration of who you were supposed to be. It's the straightening of the crooked spire in your life. So come to him, nail it all to the cross and let him say to you, I know your life has been a den of robbers, but I will make your life a house of prayer. I will make you a house of prayer. That's what it means for love to win. And that's where I can say, amen to the phrase, love is love.